You're listening to Digital Divides, Season 3 of All Things Equal. I'm your host, Verity Firth. Yeah, it's really weird. It's this very weird and confronting feeling to think that a bunch of federal police officers were sitting around and making diary notes about you and thinking, oh, like, who who do we think that Paul Farrell guy was chatting to? We reckon it's about these people or these guys. This is Paul Farrell. He's a journalist with the ABC. And, you know, the thought that they would have been combing through who I had texted or called, it's all pretty disturbing, really. In 2014, he was reporting sensitive information around the government's boat turnback policies. There are new rules in place under this new government. You are where you are because you've sought to come illegally to Australia by boat. You should tell anyone else you know who seeks to follow you that they should not do it or they'll find themselves in a similar circumstance or much, much worse. This is the policy of the new government. I was shocked to find a reference in Senate estimates to an investigation which the Australian Federal Police later confirmed was in fact an investigation into my sources for my story. It's an eerie and uncomfortable feeling to learn that you've been under surveillance for just for doing your job. Um, And, you know, it, it worries me and it's caused me a lot of anxiety and a lot of discomfort. Our world today is a digital one. We lead our lives online. Every single click you make creates a point of data, and there is a mountain of data on almost all of us. It can give a frighteningly accurate picture of who we are and how we can be influenced. And yet, we sign away the rights to this information every day, often for no more than a mobile phone game, all while our government sign legislation for ever greater powers of surveillance. We're often told, if you have nothing to hide, you've nothing to fear. And yet, privacy is essential to the human condition. The question of who has access to our data and what it may be used for is one we need to answer very soon. But in a world where algorithms can know us even better than we know ourselves, will we even notice when our free will has been compromised? Now, over to our producer, Dan Butler. I got on Facebook when I was 17, in 2007. Of course I did. Everyone else had it, and it was free. Except, of course, it wasn't. I've paid for Facebook from the moment I signed up. I got a social platform to engage with friends, and I paid for it with data. It's the real purpose behind so many apps and platforms, and it's one we're all engaged in. And and I go to the kids because I think Looking at your kids and how the technology is affecting them makes you more mindful of how you're doing it. So, of course, you model behaviour. Peter Lewis is the director of the newly established Centre for Responsible Technology. So, you model behaviour if everyone's sitting at the table, being a little data extraction miner, you know, down the coal boat. Mine. They are the mine. Yeah, we are mining every day. Every day that we're scrolling through and liking and everything, apart from getting our little dopamine hit, we're producing more data that big organisations are taking to work out more ways of keeping us engaged and long and modifying our behaviour to give them more information to, and the cycle goes on. 
you wouldn't open your wallet and show your driver's license to someone on the street. Most of us are annoyed and a little suspicious when a telemarketer has swindled our numbers somehow. But when we sit in front of a computer screen and open our phones, that caution disappears. So there is this disconnect. When you put on paper what is happening with our information, and I, I prefer to call it personal information than data because I think when we talk about data, it sounds like something distant that's in a lab or something. Like, let's call it for what it is. It's our digital behaviour. It's the sites we visit, it's the calls we make, it's the places we go. Once we get the Alexa in the home, it's what we say at home. That is the information being taken. That ain't data, that's us. But why? Why do companies want to keep us online? It's the attention economy. Humans only have so much, and holding it is lucrative. There is no business model in getting people offline. There is only a business model in keeping them online. And whether you're a marketer or a political um, organisation or a social um, enterprise, your matrix, if you've got communications people, is how do you increase engagement? How do you keep people on sites longer? And there are all these ways of doing that, which are about incremental reward, randomised gaming, you know. So how do you break that? you just got to start getting a community conversation about the, the value in being offline as well as online. Like this, this whole sense that we are living digital lives, yeah, great, but we're also still humans as well. Our data or our personal information is valuable and we also have a claim to it, yet we give it up on a daily basis. There have been huge data breach scandals and more happen every day. And we're still using all the services, platforms and apps of the companies that have severely misused, misplaced or simply lost our information. The problem is that the, the harms of that are so abstract and distant and the benefits of these platforms are so immediate and so obvious that it becomes really hard to grasp and conceptualise what those downsides mean for me. This is Dr Matt Beard. He's a fellow at the Ethics Centre here in Sydney. If someone is telling me that, um, you know, I can, I can have some kind of digital assistant in my home and I can just shout out and tell them and they'll make a shopping list for me. You actually don't have to yell at it, okay? It uses far-field technology so it can hear you from anywhere in the room. They'll order something for me or they'll tell me when the next bus is coming or whatever it is that I need them to do. That's a really obvious and immediate benefit. The risks are ambiguous, they're far more removed, and they're not necessarily risks to me. This perception is one that is now starting to shift. The Australian Human Rights Commission is currently investigating the impact technology is having on our human rights. They've undertaken extensive public consultation. People are saying that they're just starting to understand that their personal information can be used against them. Ed Santo is the Australian Human Rights Commissioner. When you think about that, it's a really profound idea. It's not some narrow understanding of privacy where, you know, you may want to live a more secluded life. It's something much, much more fundamental. It's essentially saying that a whole range of human rights, and potentially all human rights, can be positively or negatively affected. In a lot of cases, people... Uh, in the form of their data is being used in ways that 
those people don't know about, uh, in ways that those people wouldn't approve of if, if they did know about, um, just in various ways uh, where there is deception involved or trickery or sometimes some sort of coercion. Sasha Molitoritz is a researcher at the Centre for Media Transition at the Faculty of Law at UTS. He's currently writing a book looking at privacy in the digital age. And, yeah, in those cases, people are being treated merely as a means, um, and specifically that's how their data is being treated. So people are being reduced to data sets, uh, and those data sets about people are being bought and sold and exchanged, um, and companies are profiting off them. Uh, So, yeah, I think what needs to happen is we start... We need really to get back to treating each other as people, and that will involve thinking about, okay, what sort of limits are we going to place on how companies can buy and sell data, what data simply can't be bought and sold. Um, Those sorts of limits uh, are really important. It's not just corporations either. Government is increasingly interested in our data. In 2015, the government passed laws requiring telcos to retain your metadata for two years. Think of metadata as a footprint not a fingerprint. It shows which websites you visited, but not what you wrote there. It's who you called, not what you said. Perhaps it's hard to imagine that visiting a few websites or tweeting or liking a Facebook page says very much about you. But Paul Farrell, whose information was accessed by the federal police, knows firsthand how revealing it can be. Metadata isn't the content of a communication, it's the, the things around the contents. It's, you know, who you called, when you called them, the location you were at. But actually, metadata can reveal this really detailed portrait of a human being's life. It can tell you who they met, where they were, what time they met with them. When you put together all that information in aggregate, it can give you this really rich sense of what a person was doing. So it's deeply personal information, and when used in the wrong way, it can have really adverse impacts on people. This is the power of data. It is incredibly revealing. It can even predict the future, your future. Researchers into Twitter showed that um, location data is so powerful that if you know someone's location data, you can very accurately, most of the time, predict where someone will be in 24 hours. So, you know, that sort of predictive ability of digital data is very powerful. This is where all our diligent data mining of freely handing over our information for years has led. We've fed so much of ourselves into the servers of Facebook and Google and all the rest that they know us. They know us so well that they can predict our behaviour. But there's an even scarier reality, one we may be totally unaware of. You know, it is becoming clear that that algorithms and predictive behavioural insights can enable people to be targeted at very specific times and that will then nudge them into acting this way or that way. Um, Manipulate's a very strong word. You know, you, you probably couldn't manipulate someone into doing something that they are... Complete, that is completely out of character. But you can certainly nudge people into behaving um, in subtly different ways at certain times. What a night! It, and, and a, a complete earthquake. This was an earthquake unlike any earthquake I've really seen uh, since one. I'm hearing about a nightmare. The 2016 election ended with a thunderclap that is echoing around the world. Trump 
they trust. At 2.38 a.m., it became official Donald Trump will become the 45th president. And an English firm, Cambridge Analytica, was paid $5 million in September alone to analyze the data for Trump and help refine... Cambridge Analytica drilled deep, looking for a trove of social media data on Americans to help Republican presidential campaigns fine-tune their messages and win votes. Cambridge Analytica offered Facebook users a fun, psychological profiling test. It's the kind of thing you use to pass 10 minutes on the bus. But it gave the company access to not only those users' data, but of all their Facebook friends too, whether they'd done the survey or not. In the end, they accessed 50 million users' information and used it to target them with political ads. Now, we don't really know how effective that was. The potential is that it swayed the election for Donald Trump. The other possibility is it had no effect at all. Um, it's very hard to know. We'll, we'll never know because these, these ads that were targeting individuals were so personalised. But the Cambridge Analytica boasted that it was very effective at being able to identify particular voters who might, say, be undecided and just swaying them enough to vote for Trump. Or, uh, and I think this is more plausible, um, swaying someone who was going to vote for Clinton to have enough doubt to stay away from voting. Take a moment to appreciate the significance of the Cambridge Analytica event. A corporation using data that we supplied, possibly tipping the result of the most consequential election in the world in favour of the highest bidder. That's the threat democracies now face. But our democratic rights, including to privacy, aren't just under threat from outside forces. There's the ever-present threat from within. Since the 9-11 terrorist attacks, successive Australian governments have made ever greater claims on our privacy. When Paul Farrell's metadata was accessed, the federal police had to obtain a warrant first, but only because Paul belongs to a small community. That's right. Yeah, journalists are a privileged class, I guess, in the data retention scheme um, in that a warrant is required to access their information and that safeguard isn't available to other classes of citizens at all. If you aren't a journalist, the Australian government can access every phone call you've made and every website you've visited for the last two years and you'd never know. But surveillance in Australia is on the verge of taking a quantum leap. Our Human Rights Commissioner says it's unprecedented. So this is a federal bill um, known as the Identity Matching Services Bill. And perhaps the best known aspect of that is a um, legal framework that would essentially allow mass surveillance in Australia for the first time in our history. Right now, the government is working on the creation of a national facial recognition database. Have you had a licence or passport photo taken in the last few years? Well, then that information will end up in a nationwide framework that government agencies and even private businesses will be able to access. If you imagine um, that cameras can now recognise certain, certain aspects of the face and they can map that data from a live read onto, for example, the biometric data that's held in your passport or driver's licence to be able to patch those two pieces of information together and then get an instant real-time location on an individual travelling through public spaces through the visual read that might come from, say, a year-average digital CCTV camera throughout the city. 
that gives them a real-time location index for where people are when they're travelling through space. This is Dr Peter Rogers. He's a senior lecturer in the sociology of law at Macquarie University. People often say if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. Um, personally, I, I don't have anything to hide and I'm very open about the things that I do, but I feel deeply uncomfortable about the fact that I'm being watched all of the time. In fact, the government already proposed this facial recognition database last year. It was rejected for lacking the necessary safeguards around the incredibly sensitive, valuable and private information that that database would hold. If there aren't protections in place to ensure that that data isn't inaccessible across multiple organisations and can only be used by people within very specific parameters for legitimate reasons, then we have to raise questions over why they need it at all. The bill is currently being rewritten, but we don't need to look very far to find this technology already in action. There's a test case going on in Australia right now. Well, in Darwin, they've been trialling uh, a number of the biometric facial recognition technologies and particularly looking at how to implement those technologies as part of law and order. It's being packaged as another smart city revolution, but Darwin is increasing the digital surveillance of its citizens in the name of catching criminals. But facial recognition technology, as it stands, is far from perfect. It often makes errors. Uh, Facial recognition technology tends to be um, trained on photographs of um, white men. Um, So if you happen to be a person of colour or a woman or a person with a physical disability or or anyone in in, in those sorts of categories, then you're much more likely to be um, affected by error when it comes to facial recognition. And when you think about um, the use of facial recognition in a situation where the stakes are really high and policing um, is clearly a context where the stakes in human rights terms are very high, then we should be really worried about that. Facial recognition, mass surveillance, human rights infringements. Maybe you associate these things more with China's totalitarian regime than home. The similarities aren't a coincidence. In April last year, Darwin Council travelled to Shenzhen for a so-called Smart City Conference to see this technology in action before rolling it out back home. Using China as a model for surveillance sets a dangerous precedent. China combines facial recognition technology and data analysis not only to catch criminals, but to keep a running score on every single citizen. There's a a series of sister city programs that are up across Australia. It's fairly common. And Darwin is actually twinned with a city in China. That system's... It's truly, truly innovative and a little terrifying. There are a number of ways in which it works. Effectively, your digital footprint can be monitored. Now, that is social media and things you might say on a social media platform, uh, communications you might have through apps like WeChat. Um, but also your purchasing history online can be accessed. Uh, Are you buying too many video games? Are you buying lots of alcohol? You might lose points on the social credit system. Are you donating lots to charity? You might gain points on the social credit system. This point system doesn't exist just to rank people. There are concrete ramifications as a result of your behaviour. It's been used to deny travel for uh, high-speed trains to around about 29 million people since its inception. If your rating drops below a certain rank, you might find 
not just high-speed train tickets, you can find that your access to healthcare can be denied, your access to certain education privileges, your kids might not be able to get into a school, you won't be able to get a loan, your uh, credit cards can be revoked. So it creates pressure to, and, and actually incentivizes people to go and then put pressure on others to conform. There are actually a reward system through the WeChat app in China where alerts will be sent to family members if someone in their family is losing points on the social credit system so that they can then take actions to try and make that person conform to improve their overall ratings. And we start to see the insidious creep where it stops being about monitoring certain types of criminal behavior and it starts being about enforcing conformance to a much narrower version of what's acceptable. Perhaps it's hard to imagine that level of control being introduced here, of privileges or even necessities being denied because of your behaviour. Well, you don't have to imagine. Again, it's going on in Australia right now. The fact that that you can't receive your parenting payment unless you take your child to some arbitrary activity is actually not empowering young mothers. I mean, how would any parent feel having the sort of warmth and security and food that they offer their child um, suddenly in jeopardy if they don't do something that someone tells them that they have to do? This is Ella. She was part of a government support program called Parents Next. I was out of work for about six years. Living off one income was getting a bit... It was getting really hard. I left school before. It provides welfare payments to parents, mostly single mothers, with the intention of them re-entering the workforce. As a condition of the payment, parents have to engage for one hour a week in a pre-arranged activity. The activities are supposed to be pre-employment activities like study, um, but what happens with the Parents Next program is it dips into sort of... um, parenting stuff like swimming lessons, um, playgroup, library, story time, uh, those sort of things. It's unclear what bearing such parenting activities have on participants' ability to re-enter the workforce, but if they aren't completed, payments cease. Ella was monitored every week to make sure she was taking her child to swimming lessons, something she was already doing. I felt humiliated. Um, I felt like, um, you know, why wouldn't they think that I was doing the best that I could be doing? And and I think all mothers on Parents Next have said, but I am doing my best for my child. I'm doing everything I can. And they're telling me that I'm not. And now they're going, like, how can they check up on me? And uh, it made me, when I was at swimming lessons, it made me feel resentful that I was suddenly there because I had to be. Encouraging parents to take their kids to swimming lessons or story time is an easy sell. But monitoring that and stripping life-saving payments as a consequence sets a dangerous precedent. Ella says her privacy was the first casualty of receiving the payments. In the initial appointment, um, I was forced by the Parents Next consultant and her manager to sign a privacy waiver, which gives the Parents Next provider, who is someone who has zero qualifications, access to all of my personal data and information. 
So the form actually gives them the right to phone my GP without me knowing and request any and all information that the GP may hold about me. Um, so I resisted signing it and they said, well, if you don't, we will suspend your payments. That threat to her privacy and her payments was distressing enough for Ella. But the extent of the government's surveillance on her became clear in a shocking incident when she was forced to change her activity away from swimming lessons. Well, initially, um, I didn't know that they were monitoring my social media, um, but I had posted on Twitter that I was being forced to take my daughter to swimming lessons. And I knew something was up because quite quickly that was getting thrown back in my face by um, the Department of Jobs and employees within an email. Well, you said that swimming lessons were um, weren't an appropriate activity anyway, so that's why we're making you come in and change your um, participation plan. Thousands of people are still on the Parents Next program, accepting the surveillance and monitoring that is required for them to receive those vital payments are a bitter pill to swallow. Well, what do you do? You, as a parent, you always make decisions for your child. You don't think, oh, I'm going to be a single parent and I'm, you know, going to just roll around and do nothing. It happens and you try and do the best for your child and unfortunately a lot of women are in a circumstance where they can't work uh, and the only income that they get is social security which is a legal right in Australia uh, and to have that potentially taken away if I don't give this moron access to my private data I mean you would think that this was happening in a different country but it's happening here. And soon enough, this country could have a facial recognition database of every single one of us. Maybe while we're being watched, we'll be told, if you've nothing to hide, you've nothing to fear. But sometimes it's in the watching that the danger lies. When someone is told that they might be being watched at some stage, they act as though they are being watched. Um, and that means that whether or not you are actually going to ever have your information pulled, there is a chance that you will rethink the things that you do and the ways that you engage so that you can't necessarily walk down the street. You can't necessarily visit a particular shop. If you are a member of a religious community, maybe it's much more difficult to access your place of worship um, without being seen and without being monitored and without worrying what your behaviour might be telling to a system that doesn't understand you as well as you understand you. The argument that's often put in response to, to say everything that Google knows and everything Facebook knows and all the government surveillance going on is that if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. Uh, and it's quite a, intuitively, it's quite a persuasive argument. But, uh, you know, my response to that is that we all have something to hide. Privacy is really important. Um, you know, privacy is, is very important for each of us as individuals, but also um, it's important for us uh, and our relationships. So a number of philosophers have made this argument that without privacy we can't love or trust or befriend because it's in the way that we are when we're vulnerable and intimate and private that we bond with other people. And if that's just all of a sudden made fully public, um, you know, commercialised, uh, then that changes the nature of our relationships. Thanks for listening to All Things Equal 
a collaboration between the Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion at the University of Technology, Sydney, and 2SER 107.3. The podcast is produced by Dan Butler. Thanks to supervising producer Sharon Davis and Amelia Navasquez for sound design support. 2SER sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, country that was never ceded. If you like the show, don't forget to subscribe or maybe give us a review so other people can find us. I'm Verity Firth. Till next time.